Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Looking this morning at verses 20 through 24, glimmers of grace is what I've called the message. Uh, In Psalm 103, verses 8 through 11, David wrote this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. By the days of the psalmist, the character of God as a merciful and gracious God had been well established. This is Psalm 103. It had been well established in the Psalms. It had been well established in the Pentateuch. It had been well established in the days of the judges that God is holy, but that God is also merciful and gracious. Thousands of years had proved the Lord to be slow to anger, to be plenteous in mercy. A God who is quick, even in anger, to release that anger, quick to forgive. A God who does not deal with man in accordance with the severity of our offenses against him, who has not dealt with us according to our sins, who has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. Rather, his mercy is very great toward them that fear him. But remember, in Genesis chapter 3, from a purely linear standpoint in the context of divine revelation, we are still learning about God. I've, I've encouraged you to do this several times throughout the course of Genesis is to pretend as though you didn't have any, any background going into Genesis, that this was indeed your introduction to this God as we walk through Genesis. And, and if we were to take it that way, the things that we would have learned about God already coming into this point in the book of Genesis is that he is omnipotent, omnipresent, that he is omniscient. Omnipotent meaning he's all-powerful, omnipresent meaning he is everywhere, not in everything in the sense of God is not everything, God is not the things in here. God is is his own person, but God is indeed everywhere, and that God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. And the reason why we see God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipotent is because he is outside of the system. God created the system. God created time, space, and matter. He is outside of time, space, and matter, and in that he is outside of time, space, and matter, he can see all, know all, and do all within the scope of his created order. So he is these things. We saw that. We've learned that he is creative. We've learned that he is intentional, right? That he has created all that is. And if we look around us, we see all that is. And we say God is a very creative God. And we talked as we were talking about that, about the fact that we are creative as well, but our creativity has limits. And if you think of anything, particularly if you think of the genre of sci-fi, right? Science fiction, And you think of all of the things that might come up in a science fiction narrative with aliens and and things that are supposed to be otherworldly. The fact of the matter is every otherworldly thing still looks something like what we see, right? Maybe it has tentacles, okay? So it looks like an octopus. And that's what we'd say. Oh, it has octopus arms, right? Because we can only relate to the things that we understand. Maybe uh, it has uh, big eyes or strange eyes, but you know what? It's still bipedal. It's still humanoid, right? All of these different things. We draw from what we understand. God created these things ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is the ultimate creator and the ultimate creative. And we can see that from the creation that is around us. Uh, That God is intentional. That God intentionally made, that God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That God is intentional in his creative process. We learned of his intent in creating man, that he created man with intrinsic dignity. His goodness in providing for man, not just giving man everything that he would need as far as food in the garden of the, of the fruit of the trees you may freely eat, God said, but also giving man a purpose to keep the garden, to till the ground, to name the animals, to have dominion over the earth. God gave man purpose. God gave man sustenance. God provided for man. We've learned already of his hesitance unto anger in that Adam and Eve transgressed the single prohibition that God had given to them, and yet he was restrained in his judgment. He asks questions. Have you eaten of the fruit of which I told you that thou shalt not surely eat? Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. 
He asked the woman, what have you done? She said it was the serpent. He is asking questions, but he has been restrained in judgment thus far. Levying curses, but not utterly destroying his creation. And we spoke of, uh, about why that is last time we were together. Because the sins which Adam chose would be woven together with God's sovereignty to bring about the redemption that is in Christ. And we talked about that last week as we talked about the headship of, Christ, of, of Adam. The fact that Adam is the head of the human race and in that headship, what we lost, what humanity lost, it lost in Adam. And in that Christ is that second Adam, what humanity lost in Adam, it regained in Christ. And so we've talked through all of this already. We have learned all of these things simply from the first three chapters of Genesis. God is able to make something even more beautiful, we learned last time, than the Edenic state through the redemptive work of his son. Now, the promise of God's mercy has already been established. We talked about that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What we talk about as the first real uh, expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where God promises he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that the seed of the woman would bruise or would destroy would, would, would um, crush the head of the serpent. The defeat of the enemy of God's people was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Truly the first expression of the gospel. So to this point in the text, we know that God is long-suffering. We know that God is just. We know that God is merciful. But today we get to see that God is also gracious. Grace and mercy are distinct but interrelated ideas in the scriptures. At Legacy Baptist Church, we define mercy as unmerited pardon, not being given something that I deserve, in the negative sense, of course. So mercy being, I deserve some punishment, I deserve some chastisement, I deserve some, something negative, and God does not give me what I deserve. He shows me pardon, and it's unmerited, it's undeserved pardon. And that's mercy. Grace, we define at Legacy Baptist Church as unmerited favor. Being given something that I do not deserve. So grace is when I am extended something that I do not deserve. Mercy is when I'm with, is, is something is withheld from me uh, without, without being deserved that. In other words, I'm not given what I do deserve, right? And today we're going to see grace. We, we've seen mercy already. God cursed man and woman rather than destroying them. That's mercy. Man and woman deserved, and we know this, the wages of sin is death. Man and woman deserve to be destroyed for their sin. But God did not destroy them. He showed them mercy. Satan was cast out of heaven rather than destroyed for his iniquity. God showed Satan mercy. But today we get to see something a little bit different. We get to see the first picture. Now, the promise, the promise of, of the gospel is grace. But today we get to see the first picture of grace, where God extends to man something, gives man something that he does not deserve. That while God may have shown mercy in that he did not simply kill man or destroy man in judgment for his sin... Yet man has been left in this state that happened the moment that they felt that, that Adam partook of that, that uh, fruit, the moment that he, he fell to sin, he is now in this state of fear and of shame and of guilt. And he sought to cover his shame, he and, and Eve, by sewing fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And today we get to see God extend grace toward them unmerited favor, giving them something that they do not deserve in order that they might relate themselves to him once again. Now, grace has been a theme which has found its way into my sermons quite a bit lately, especially in our Sunday evening sermon series in Hebrews. If you're following that, you know that I spent several weeks, five weeks, in fact, on grace in that Hebrews series, just a little mini series on grace to try to understand it better. Uh, I do not fear by talking about grace again today, that the concept will get stale. I don't know that the concept of grace can get stale. But I'm also not going to rehash everything that I said in those five sermons. 
Those messages are freely available on video and audio, and I'd encourage you to go back on YouTube, uh, go to um, uh, our sermon audio page, or look for us in podcast form, and you can find those sermons. And I'd encourage you to listen to that mini-series on grace if you need a refresher on it, or if you'd like to get a, dig a little bit deeper into the nature of the Bible's teachings on grace. But we are going to explore grace today and hit the highlights, and particularly consider it from this perspective of its first introduction to this element of God's character. So we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, and Adam called his wife, his wife's name, excuse me, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. So we begin our context just after God has cursed the serpent, right? Uh, God asked them what they did. Man says the woman. The woman says the serpent. God curses the serpent. Then God curses the woman. Then God curses the man. And now we find ourselves after those cursings have been meted out. Um, each one is received in their bodies, the consequence of their sin. And now we have this instance of Adam naming the woman. To this point, now we have called Eve, Eve, in any number of contexts to this point. I've called her Eve for some time now because you're familiar enough with the text to know that the first woman was named Eve. But the naming of Eve as Eve does not actually happen until this verse, until this point in time in our narrative. God had given to man the woman, but the woman had not yet been named. Now, what is interesting about this is that in one sense, Adam, we call him Adam, but Adam being the name for the man is also the name in Hebrew for mankind. It is the name for all mankind, male and female, for humans, for homo sapiens. Homo sapiens, that word in the Hebrew is Adam. It is Adam. Adam's name was mankind. It's not the word for male. The word male in Hebrew would be zakar. And then we have, of course, the word for woman. And so you had male and female, man and woman. Man's name was sort of mankind. He is the prototype of mankind. He is the first man. And this, once again, can bring us back to that headship idea we talked about last week. When we talk about Adam being the head of the human race, literally, that is his name. <laughs> his name is mankind. His name is human, right? His name is bearing out the reality that he is the representative. Adam is the only man who would ever exist who was not born of a woman, the only one who is outside of the cycle of being born. And to that end, he is unique. He is different. He is a prototype of that which would be to come. So Adam was, is the name for mankind, and then that was also his name. And he, to that, this point, has simply called woman, woman. He has called her by her descriptor. He has called her for what she is. Adam remarks on their sin. Adam says, the woman that you gave to me uh, gave me of the fruit and I did eat. But this quickly changes. Adam, following these curses, gives Eve a name, woman a name, and that name is Eve. The word Eve means life or life bearer. And it is also a descriptive term, very similar to Adam's term, name. Uh, we find in this something very significant. When God cursed the woman, the curse revolved around the nature of the childbearing process, right? That she would have, uh, that, that she would have much travail, much trial and, and much pain in childbearing, and that this was a part of the curse that would be given to her for her, her rebellion, as it were, against God, for stepping outside of the headship role that had been given to her. And this is a very, very important element to understand here as Adam named her Eve. She's been given something unique and special in relation to humanity. And that defines her and her existence, that women are able to bear and sustain the next generation of humanity. Women are literally the life bearers of humanity. Far from the depraved culture in which we live, which has somehow twisted the most precious and honorable gift that a woman has and, and turned it into a curse in many women's minds. 
It has been understood by most cultures throughout time, and rightly so. It is understood as we study the Word of God that, that, that women, through this ability that they have been given to bear life, to bear the next generation of humanity, they have been given the highest honor in, in life and society. Women sustain humanity's existence. They are the life bearers. And as it's extended to the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says women not only hold the key to the, to the existence of humanity, but women hold the key to the next generation of the church. The next generation of Christ's church is realized in our children, the children that are here today. They are the next generation. They are the ones that are going to carry the truths of God's word into the future. And every single child in here today has come into this world through woman. Making our mothers a very special group. A group worthy of our love, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our respect, worthy of our honor. So the first woman's name was called Eve. It, she was defined by the fact that she was the life bearer. She was the one who would propagate the human species. She was the mother of all living, the scriptures tell us. Not all creatures, but every human. Every human apart from Adam, the prototypical human, would come from Eve. So now we have them, Adam and Eve. What is God going to do with these two? Well, man and woman have now rebelled against God. They have fallen out of fellowship with the Lord through sin. They felt shame. They felt fear. They hid themselves. They sought to clothe themselves, clothe themselves with fig leaves. And yet for all of this, God has already announced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he has a great plan. That great plan will be focused in on the seed of the woman, right? There it is again, that the woman would bring forth the seed that would destroy the serpent. That the woman would bring forth the seed, we know that seed to be Jesus Christ, who would eventually destroy the work of Satan. So God had great plans for the redemption of the human race. And yet the human race has now fallen out of fellowship with him. So what does he do? Well, he extends to them grace. So we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So, Following the consequence of their sinful choices, God clothed them with coats of skins. Now, this is not an insignificant event, and that for several reasons. First, it acknowledges that Adam and Eve can't go back to the innocence and the purity with which they once operated. God can extend to them grace. He can cover the shame of their sin, but he can't undo it. What's done is done. They cannot go back to their innocence. They cannot go back to where they were before. They can only move forward. They sin. They now have this knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are open. And, and we've talked about that already. That, that, was not a, that was not a gain. That was a loss. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But they can't go back. God cannot just erase that. It must be, it's, it's now there. It's in history. It must be dealt with. So God does not erase their sin but God covers their shame. What they lost, they have now lost for the remainder of their earthly lives and indeed for the remainder of, of humanity in this age of time. So first it acknowledges that Adam and Eve can't go back. And we can't go back. We are where we are. We live in this world. We live in the context of sin. We live in the context of suffering. We live in the context of these things that can't be erased from history. But it can be atoned. And that's what we see here. It reflects the tremendous grace of God. God meets mankind where they are. They chose to go down this path they are now fallen and in a sinful state. But God says, I will clothe you. God will not abide them existing in their sin openly, but he will make provision for their shame to be covered so that they might in their sinful state 
operate apart from the shame of their sin and be clothed in atonement. And this is, in fact, the first and the earliest picture of atonement. One which would become more clear in the next chapter with Cain and Abel, and then would become uh, even more clear in the, um, in the law with the, the, the various animal sacrifices, and then, of course, would climax in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the finishing work, the atonement for sin for all time through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. But this first picture of atonement is the covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness by God himself with coats of skin, a gracious act of love toward them, which they neither earned nor deserved, but was extended by the love of God to them. And this leads us to the third point here. Whereas Adam and Eve, when they sought to cover the shame of their sin, they sewed fig leaves together, God covered them with coats of skins. Now there's only one way for a coat of skin to be prepared for them to wear it. And that was for an animal to die. Right? If a... If you wear a leather coat, if you sit on leather seats in your car, if you have a very warm hat uh, that's made of of some uh, skin, an animal died, so you could wear that. So you could sit on that, right? If you've got those nice leather work gloves, an animal died for those. The only way to make a coat of skin is to kill an animal. Now, prior to this point, there's only one record of death. And that record of death is Adam and Eve being spiritually separated from God and being ushered into that state of fear and of guilt and of shame into which God, they, they, you know, they hid themselves from God in their rebellion. That's the only death that we have seen to this point is spiritual death, the separation of man's spirit from God's spirit. To that end, we don't have any record of any bodily death that has happened to this point. As a matter of fact, that's one of the very important points, both as it relates to the nature of evolution uh, and, and our contentions against Darwinian evolution and to the nature of God's working in the world itself that Romans chapter 5 says, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, right? So death came after sin. Sin came before death. Man was there before sin. Man ushered sin into the world. Man brought sin. Sin brought death, which means if man is supposedly evolved from apes through a process of millions or of billions of years of these animals dying off, then mutating, then the, the, the survival of the fittest and the strong killing off the weak to bring us to homo sapien, then Man could not have existed prior to death, which means death brought man. Man didn't bring death. And if death brought man, if death existed prior to man, but man brought sin into the world, which means death existed prior to sin, then when Jesus on the cross atones for all sin, it doesn't actually fix the problem of death because death pre-existed sin. Death pre-existed Adam. And that is theologically impossible. Death brought, was brought by sin. Sin was ushered into the world by man. So man had to exist before sin, which means man had to exist before death, which is one of the reasons why we have such a big problem with Darwinian evolution. It just doesn't fit into the Bible's system. It completely crumbles the nature of Jesus Christ's the theology of Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. So we we talk about this idea, which leads us to believe that there had been no death to this point because man just sinned, right? Then he hid himself. Then he sowed fig leaves to cover his shame. Then then God sought them to, to walk with them in the cool of the day. They hid themselves from God. They presented themselves to God. They acknowledged their sin to God and God made them clothes of skin, as far as we can tell, reasonably, uh, reasoning through it, this was the, the first physical death. And that physical death happened for one reason and one reason only, to clothe, to cover man's shame. And this is the first picture of atonement. 
a direct testimony of one thing, an innocent thing dying for the guilt of another. Something innocent dying so that the guilty could benefit. An innocent animal being killed to clothe, to cover the shame of the guilty. And as we've said so many times in recent days related to grace, the grace that God extended to Adam and Eve on that day did not cost them anything but their repentance. But that doesn't mean it didn't have a cost, right? God covered mankind's nakedness, provided for them relief from their fear and their guilt and their shame. It came at the cost, however, of another of God's creatures. Something which had not sinned, but was killed in order to cover the shame of man. And if at this point in the narrative there's any question of the unique place that mankind has in the heart of God, the unique position he holds in value and in favor, the unique dignity that God has conferred upon mankind above the other created animals, that this circumstance should put all those questions to rest. God willingly shed the blood of another of these creatures in order to provide for the restoration of mankind to dignity and to virtue. And this is not a reflection of the heartlessness of God toward animals. Indeed, the Bible reflects quite the opposite. Not only has the Bible called for man to take dominion over the earth and to care for the the earth, but the Bible tells us that not one sparrow falls to the ground without God's knowledge, right? The Bible says that. Jesus says that in Matthew. That not one sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing about it. So God does have a care for the other created animals, and he's called us to care for our creation. We reflect that in being good stewards of the earth, right? We do not give in to the claims of eco-fascism. However, we do recognize that we are called by God to be good stewards of this earth, to take care. The book of Proverbs says that a good man cares for his beasts, right? We take care of the things that God has given us stewardship over. And yet God loves man so much that he shed the blood of one of those animals in order to clothe man to cover their sin. And that is a picture of atonement. This is why God's grace was extended with such intensity and determination because the depth of the love that God has for mankind, he was not willing that we would live in perpetual shame and fear in our sin, but by himself he covered our shame at the expense of another of his creatures, of his creation, And of course, as we extend that on to the the gospel and to the New Testament, we find that God loved us so much. It was not just that he he, he wanted the blood of rams and of lambs and of goats, but he loved us so much that he allowed the very blood of his son, the perfect, the spotless lamb as as a lamb without blemish, without spot. He allowed the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he loved so much to be shed that we might be saved, that we might receive that atonement. And that's the picture here, right? This is the first picture of what would eventually become Jesus' death on the cross, the blood that was spilt on the cross for our sin. This is the first blood that was spilt for sin. This is the first atonement. And it was only a, a small atonement. It was only the covering of the flesh. It was only a temporary atonement. It was nothing permanent. It was nothing deeply spiritual. It was covering the shame of their nakedness. But it's the, a, a picture. It's the first picture. Of atonement. So we see this introduction to grace, into the economy of God, that God gave to Adam and Eve a free gift that they did not deserve his un, their unmerited favor. But it did come at the cost to another. And God provides for the covering of the shame of Adam and Eve in grace. But we have already seen, and now as we continue in the text, we find that this does not mean, the fact that God extended to them grace and mercy does not mean that sin does not come with consequences. And oh, Christian, if we can get this into our minds, the fact that God is a gracious God and a merciful God does not mean that sin does not come with consequences. We've already seen the curse upon woman. We've already seen the curse upon man. But there is another consequence, one which is kind of in line with the curse that has already been levied. God has already said to Adam that he would labor with the, with the, the toil of his brow, that he would have to work very hard to get the earth to produce its fruit, 
that, um, th that there would be thorns and thistles that would resist him in his efforts to bring about um, sustenance and provision. And then we find this in verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree, fruit, uh, uh, take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And we'll pick up there in just a moment. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they did not gain, but rather they lost. It was not an upgrade, it was a downgrade. They already understood right and wrong, I said. They, they did know right and wrong. God had told them, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else was right. The one thing that they could not do was to partake of that fruit. So they already had this intrinsic knowledge of good and evil in that way. But in that message, we also talked about the, the pseudo-freedom of sin, and this is the idea that we see here. There was a knowledge which they did in fact gain on that day that they ate of that fruit. Called from its inception the knowledge of good and evil. A world of sin was opened up to them when they stepped outside of purity and virtue. And this is a concept not foreign to Scripture. In fact, uh, it's dealt with quite regularly in the New Testament. Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 16, verse 19, as he talks to the church. He says, For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. There is a world that exists beyond the pages of Scripture. A world beyond innocence and virtue. A world which some of us know very well because we've lived in that world of sin and of degradation and of wickedness and of debauchery. And by God's grace, there are people in here who don't know that world. There are people who have not seen the depths of that world. I, by God's grace, particularly our children don't know that world that they have been incubated from the, the deeper depravities of the world that are around them. But even among the adults here, there are, are, are many who have never gone out and sought for that portion of the world, who have never interacted with that portion of the world and are in a blessed ignorance as it relates to those things. What Paul would call a simplicity concerning evil. This is not a bad thing. Now, this is not for everyone. There are those who have seen evil face to face, who have been called out of that evil, who have in ignorance or in rebellion stepped into that place of evil and found their way back, or who have simply had to interact with the evil, such as, you know, when I go to the jail. There's a lot of things that I've learned in the past eight years there of interacting with uh, folks every week in the jail that I did not know before, simply of the world of evil. But even if we cannot relate to such a world, it is important to know that that world exists. We can be simple concerning evil, but know that that world exists. And the world of depravity was the world that was opened up to Adam and Eve on that day. They lived in innocence. They lived in virtue. They received this knowledge of good and evil, and what opened up to them was a world of depravity. They gained nothing on that day. It was, it was a, believe, we all, anyone who's lived in that world knows that it was a step back, not a step forward. The world which is rooted in what the Bible defines as the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the one we've spoken of many times already, the, the, the world of, of sin, sin that promises more than it can give. It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. It takes more from you than it says it will. That's the world of evil. It's a world with a promise of freedom, but we call it pseudo-freedom because it's not really freedom. Yes, you can do whatever you want, but at what cost? Yes, the realities of morality bind us to actions and inactions. But when we step outside of that morality, when we step outside of the boundaries of God's revealed will, it is not that we have no ability to go there. It is not that our minds cannot comprehend those things. But the question is, they come at what cost? 
The world calls that freedom. They see our children and they say, you are binding your children to this ignorance. But see, we look at the world, the life that they're living, and we say, you are in bondage. You are a slave to your sin. You are no better off for the things that you know and the things that you're doing. And thus we find freedom within the bounds of God's moral will, within the bounds of the word of God. Freedom to exercise ourselves in good conscience. What are we free from when we exercise ourselves according to God's moral will? We're free from the things that Adam and Eve realized the day that they ate of the the fruit. Things they didn't even know they had that they lost on that day. They fell into fear, shame, and guilt. If you live within the bounds of God, the dictates of God's moral will, you know what you don't have in your life? Fear, shame, and guilt. You're free. You step into that world of sin and you gain the opportunity to do things and to experience things and to see things and to know things, but at the expense of your conscience, at the expense of your soul, at the expense of fear, of shame, of guilt, so that there may very well come a day where you step into that world and you say, you know what, I wish I didn't know what I know. I wish I could unlearn what I've learned. I wish I could unsee what I've seen. I wish I wasn't plagued by those things anymore because those things are bondage. And so it's a perspective issue, isn't it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is a world that promises freedom but which ravages the soul. A world where I see in the eyes of those with whom I speak at the jail, people living in the freedom that sin gives but is in reality bondage. I had a really hard conversation this week. I'll tell you about it tonight as I normally do. Talked to a woman at the jail this last week. 35 years old, five kids dealing with addictions. Had found a measure of freedom 2013, 2014. Fell back into that life. And she looked me in the eye and she said, I'm desperate to get back to that freedom and I just don't know how. Now she is living in, she's doing what she wants. I mean, even outside of the law, right? Right? She's doing what she wants. She is free. But her soul is in bondage. And she's stuck. And she just wants to be released. She wants to just move on. She wants to take care of her kids. She wants to have a normal life. She wants to live. And she can't find the way to do it. So we talked about that. Because there's a way, right? But see, the world says that's freedom. You're living in freedom. You're making your own choices. You get to do whatever you want. Yes, but that, that, those choices, it's a pseudo-freedom that Adam and Eve found on their day brought them into bondage, the bondage of fear, the bondage of shame, the bondage of guilt, and it's still the same way today. And it is for that reason that I called what happened to them on that day a loss, not a gain. From an earthly perspective, did they gain access to a realm of knowledge they did not before have? Yes. Absolutely, they did. Did that knowledge bring them any advancement, any advantage? Absolutely not. (laughs) They took one step forward and two steps back. They lost so much more than they gained. So Paul describes this idea as well in Romans chapter 6. And this is what he wrote to the church, that same church in Romans chapter 6. He said, For when ye were the servants of sin... Ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Yep. Sin gives a freedom. But unto what end? What fruit? The end of those things is death. Separation from God. Oftentimes separation from others. Alienation from relationships. And no fruit in eternity. What was done, however, was done. And now God has to deal with it. 
He acknowledges that man is now endowed not only with a knowledge of good, but also of evil. Fully incapable in himself of accommodating that knowledge properly, but it's now his. A knowledge that God never asked mankind to bear, never wanted mankind to bear, but now it's ours. Now we have to bear this knowledge. Now we have to live in this world where we are, where, where, where all of this sin exists. And the response that God takes to this is to take a step of his own. Man's presence in the garden was now a definitive risk to his own eternity. Recall there were two trees of note in the Garden of Eden, not just one. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that was not the only tree that was noted in Genesis chapter 2 as it related to the trees of the garden. There was a second tree called the tree of life, which presumably would do exactly as it describes. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did exactly as it described. They ate of the fruit, they received the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of the tree of life presumably did exactly as it was described. They ate of the tree, they would receive life. Now, we have very little biblical insight into what it means that Adam and Eve would gain life. What we would presume is that this does not necessarily have to do intrinsically with spiritual life because spiritual life was conditioned and always has been conditioned upon faith, right? So this is not necessarily a spiritual life issue. As a matter of fact, they had spiritual life until the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at which point they sinned, therefore they died. So we might presume that it has something more to do with physical life. It is also worth noting that Adam and Eve were not prohibited from eating of the tree of life prior to this point. They were prohibited of eating of the tree of the fruit of the, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but not the fruit of the tree of life. Did they eat of that fruit? Was it something that they could freely eat of as they uh, within the context of their their innocence and their virtue? We we really don't know. But now it is very clear that when, when they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it becomes apparent immediately that that fruit of the tree of life is now a threat to mankind. Not a threat to God, but a threat to mankind. That they would take of that tree and eat and live forever. Well, why would that be a bad thing? They've just been condemned to death. Wouldn't it be great? Go eat of that fruit. Now they get to live again and it's all well and good. But here's the problem. They're spiritually dead. Imagine being spiritually dead, but physically alive forever. Imagine the body not being able to die, but the spirit being dead. I mean, it's, imagine being a spiritual zombie, right? That's what it is. The body isn't dead, but the, the spirit is dead. It's, it's a zombie, As a part of the curse, we know that man would return from the dust from whence he came, right? That's what God said to Adam, that you will toil in the dust of the earth until you return to the dust from which you came. Man will die, his body will decompose. This is an important checkpoint within the scope of God's system. Why? Because what happens in Jesus's day is he dies on the cross he is buried, and then he rises from the dead into a resurrected body. And then we are promised, as we know in 1 Corinthians 15, that we too are, there's coming a day where we will have resurrected bodies. And those resurrected bodies will be paired with an eternal spirit into one of two things, right? A resurrection unto eternity of eternal life for those who have a living spirit, or a resurrection unto eternal death for those who have a dead spirit. And we read of that twofold resurrection in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. In Daniel 12, verse 2, the Bible tells us, many of them that slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is an awakening of men at the end of the earth. Some will be awoken to everlasting life and some will be awoken to everlasting death. But the key component to this resurrection is that first they must die. What if man did not die? Well, we can only speculate as to what this would mean, but it would seem that what this would imply would be that man would live in perpetual death, spiritual death, with no capacity to allow his body to return to the dust and so to receive a part in the Resurrection. There can be no resurrection if man eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If man eats of that fruit, there is no resurrection, then God's plan is undone 
to do through Jesus what he has done through Jesus. Thus, we have the hope of the resurrection. Man very well might have ushered himself into a state of eternal, eternal living while dead, a life that would have actually been perpetual death, making his separation from God indelible, thwarting God's redemptive plan. So what does God do? Genesis chapter three, verse 22, the Bible says, the Lord God said, behold, the man, uh, man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So lest man eat of the tree of life, God sent man and woman out of the garden and he sent them there to do what he had cursed them with, not necessarily just to till, but to till in a manner that would be resistant, right? The, the, Adam tended to the garden prior to the curse. Work was not the curse, but to till in the way that God had cursed him. No longer did they live in the Edenic place of God's perfect provision. Man had rejected that in deference to his own way. And instead, he would now realize the promise of the curse. He would till the ground from whence he came until he returned unto it. So we read finally in verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Man is driven out of the garden and at the east of the garden, presumably that would be the entrance. That would make a lot of sense. God seems to have all of his things have entrances to the east. Um, and so we would presume that the, the entrance to the garden of Eden was to the east and God put at that entrance cherubims to guard it so that man could not have access to the tree of life. Presumably, the Garden of Eden remained there until the flood, right? We might presume. We don't know where it was or what happened to it per se. The Bible never talks about it again until the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, which talks about it as the paradise of God. But um, we might presume that the Garden of Eden was there and guarded until the time of Noah's flood. Now, lest I skip over it, we might note that we have just been of a sort introduced to a new and previously unknown creature, called a cherubim. We have not come across this word in the scriptures to this point if we're reading linearly. And I say sort of because we have sort of been introduced to a cherubim. If you recall, when we were studying in Genesis chapter three, verse one about Satan and the nature of Satan, we did learn that Satan was an exalted cherub. So Satan was a cherubim before he fell to sin. And yet there were other cherubim as well. We don't know a whole lot about them. But these are the things the Bible tells us. When they constructed the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Exodus, cherubims factored into the decoration. Cherubims were over the mercy seat. Cherubims were, were, were embroidered into the curtains in the tabernacle. Genesis tells us that, of course, they had a flaming sword uh, that would turn every way. Exodus tells us that they had wings. The cherubim are creatures that have wings. Ezekiel tells us that they have hands like men, but that their faces were different. They were not, they were distinct from human faces. That's really all we get about the cherubims. We learned some other things about another class of angels called seraphims, um, but we don't know a whole lot about them. So it is that we come to the end of the record of man's fall and its consequences. We speak of shame. We speak of fear. We speak of the things that happened on that day. Consequences and of judgment. And those are important. But we also find in this narrative, not just loss and death and shame and fear and guilt. Don't lose sight of the fact that we also find mercy and grace. Any man, woman, or child re reading the account of the fall will see rebellion and its consequences. Shame, fear, guilt. We, all, we know those things very well. And we can look around us on a day-by-day -day basis and we can see the effects of sin in this world. We can see the innocent people die. We can see good, well-meaning people get sick. We can see illness. We can see great toil. We can see sorrow. We can see death. 
We can see the fear and the shame and the guilt resting upon the souls of those who have committed themselves to the pseudo-promises, to the pseudo-freedom of sin. Even the righteous judgment of a God who has been disobeyed is by no means a surprise for one who lives under a created order that testifies to the guilt of man's sin and the eternal Godhead of, and power of God. But the thing which the thoughtful reader of this account would not necessarily have expected to see is that this God who meted out these consequences, the consequences for man's sin, in himself made for man and women coats of skins and clothed them. Why would the God who has been offended go out of his way to fashion coats of skins for Adam and Eve? A first overture of what we have come to know as grace. That a God who had no reason apart from his love for us to do anything for us loves us so much that he has gone out of his way to provide for us a way out of our sinful choices. And that's grace. In Adam and Eve's day, it was kill the animal. God makes clothes of skin for them and covers their shame. Then that becomes sacrifices on the altar. And that becomes the tabernacle in the temple. And all of that then gives way eventually to Jesus Christ on the cross, the ultimate gift of grace. A God who loves us so much that he went out of his way to clothe and to cover our shame only with Jesus once for all. Those clothes don't wear out. I don't have to come back and do another sacrifice. God did it in Christ once for all. That's the picture. The loving character of our God. And as we contemplate such love and as we contemplate such grace, I carry you back to Paul and his writings one more time. We've already been to Romans. I want to take you to one more place. And that final place is in the book of Ephesians. And the reason why is so that I can exhort you unto some sort of applicative end. And I would really like to read the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter 2 but I'm not going to do that because it would take a little while. So I'm just going to read the first few verses. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That word quickened means made alive. Wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That is us in our sinful state. That is us in rebellion. That is us deserving of nothing from God but wrath. That's all we deserve from God is his wrath because we have offended his righteous standard. He made it. He set the rules and we've broken it and we've broken all the rules. Verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, has made us alive with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Because of his mercy, he gave us his grace. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 expresses for us what grace has done for us. Called here the exceeding riches of his grace. And every believer knows this to be true. We have an accurate, if not inadequate, understanding of the reality of grace. Because you've tasted it. You've seen it. You have been clothed by God in his righteousness. 
the fear and the, gain, the, the shame and the guilt have been removed. Doesn't mean you're sinlessly perfect. None of us is. Doesn't mean you don't still have growing to do. We all have growing in grace to do. But if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you, are, if you have come to that point in your life where you've recognized the shame of your sin, where you've recognized that you are separated from God, where you've come to a reality of, if, if I may say it this way, of your nakedness, of your sinfulness, and you have come to God and you have said, I cannot fix myself. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And God has shown you Jesus Christ and his love on the cross, that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day in victory over sin. And you have come to him and he has clothed you in his grace. Then you understand this. If you have never done that, would you do that today? When you come to be clothed in his grace, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Now, what does it mean for we who are already clothed in his grace? You say, Pastor, yes, I, I get it. He clothed them, and that's, that's the atonement. That's Jesus Christ on the cross. I get it. Um, but, but, but I know that. I know you know that, and we still need to be reminded of it, so it's certainly not a waste. But you know, Paul goes on. I've talked to you about Ephesians and Colossians before. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is talking about the theory, the doctrine. And then 4, 5, and 6, he talks about the practicality. So let's take this beyond just the doctrine of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the atonement of the Lamb, and let's take it to the practical application or implications of it. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech ye that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we could go on and talk in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, 6 about all of the instructions put off, put on, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Put on the whole armor of God. All of those things are found in these implication section of Ephesians. But it all comes down to this. On the day in Genesis that God settled Adam's fear and shame, he clothed him. In this, Adam and Eve lived, not free from the consequences of their sins, but clothed in God's grace nevertheless. And though in its kernel form, this is not unlike the way you and I are living today only on a much higher level through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we are born into the shame of our sin and there comes a day where the grace of Jesus Christ is manifest to us and we accept that grace and God clothes us in his righteousness and that does not remove from us the consequences of sin. It doesn't remove from us death and shame. It doesn't remove from us all, uh, uh, the, the, the sufferings of this life. It doesn't even remove from us our sin nature yet that's coming in the resurrection. But what it does do is it provides for us peace, release, forgiveness, a context within which to operate rightly related to God in the midst of the sinful world in which we live. And knowing what we know, seeing what we see, the call then is to walk worthy of that vocation. If you have been saved by grace through faith and clothed in the righteousness of God and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if Jesus Christ has taken upon himself on the cross fear and shame and guilt, then step out from that place of darkness, step into that place of light and live in the light that has been purchased for you. Walk worthy. We do not have to earn our way to God. Jesus did that for us. Jesus is worthy. And because Jesus is worthy, we are saved. There's nothing I can do or not do to earn or to lose heaven because Jesus did that on the cross. But since I have that, what am I doing with it? 
Am I living up to the gift that I've been given? Am I walking worthy of the vocation unto which I have been called? Or am I taking advantage of it? Am I disregarding it? Have I gotten to the point where I say, well, yeah, I have this gift. I'm going to heaven. That's all well and good. And now I will continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye have been called. We have seen the end of the road of which Adam and Eve received only a shadow and only a promise. God promised that there would be coming a day when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God promised that there was, that God, God, God showed them his grace by clothing them in skin. We now have the fullness of all of those pictures in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We see that God's promises are true. In Jesus, it all came to pass. Now let's walk worthy of it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 